Philippians chapter 3, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening, a chance to get into your word. Here in the middle of the week, Lord, this is so refreshing for us to come together, to study together, to discuss together, to stir up one another, to love and good works. And God, we pray that that would be happening tonight. Here in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. Got a question for you. What are some things that you are confident about, you personally? What are some things that you are confident about? You know, when I head out to my car in the morning, I have confidence that when I put the key in the ignition, that it's going to start up. Now, that might not be your experience. Um, You might go to your car and pray, Lord, please. (laughs) Let it start today. And I've been there before. I had an unreliable car, but uh, I have a good car right now. It's about 15 years old, but it's a Toyota, so it's reliable. And uh, I have confidence that it is going to start. I have confidence that it's going to have gas in the tank when I go out in the morning because I never let it get really too low. I've learned my lesson. I had my Ford truck, and one time I thought, I wonder how far this can go on empty. (laughs) I found out not very far. (laughs) Now, when my wife and I shared a car, um, I didn't have that same confidence. I would go out in the morning, I'd be thinking, oh, I hope she got gas yesterday, because if she didn't, I'm going to be late. But uh, no, I have confidence in that. When I was a kid, I didn't know how to swim. And I'd be there with my dad at the pool, and he would stand there, and he'd say, all right, I want you to jump, and you know, I won't let you go under. And I'd jump out, and and I had confidence that my dad was going to catch me, that he wasn't going to let me go under, that he wasn't going to let me drown. And and pretty soon I'd be, you know, he'd, he'd move further and further back, and I'd be running out. It was so fun. It was a blast because I had confidence in my dad that he was going to catch me. So those are some things that I have confidence in or I had confidence in. Here's some things that I don't have a lot of confidence in. Anything that has to do with electricity scares me to death. I am afraid of being electrocuted. I am. I don't want to be shocked. And I know some of you guys that, you know, you deal with electricity. You're saying, it's oh, it's not a big deal, Pastor Rob. It's not on my bucket list, all right, to experience that. I have a fear of singing in front of people. Not confident in that. I have this fear of having to close a service on a Sunday leading you all in a song. And so when I'm praying... At the end of the message, I'm waiting to hear that door open right over there. That means the worship team is coming out. I'm waiting to hear, you know, whoever's up here come out and and plug in their guitar. And because I don't have a confidence that I'd be able to pull that off. I know how to start one song on key. And it's happened three times in 25 years that the worship team left me hanging. (laughs) That they didn't show up at the end of the service. And... And so I have no confidence at all in in that. It it scares me. When it comes to car problems, I can handle basic things like an oil change, but, you know, anything beyond that, I'm I'm lost when it comes to 
cars, especially the new ones with all their electronics. Having confidence or not having confidence can really affect the way that you approach life or how you approach a particular situation. And spiritually, who and what you are confident in makes all the difference in the world. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we have to resist the temptation to be confident in ourselves. And this is what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 3. And he's going to give some insights on this using his own experience. Let's pick it up here in verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Or the idea there, it is fitting. I love what David Gusick in his commentary, The Enduring Word, says about this verse. He says, This abiding joy is fitting for the believer because it shows that we really do trust in a God whom we really believe is in control. And when we believe this, it isn't any surprise that we are then filled with joy. So Paul says, this is fitting for me to remind you. But then he gives this warning in verse 2. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. Paul gives a warning to those who might try to come and steal our joy. And I want you to notice that he uses that word beware three times. And Paul is using really strong language here, and it is meant to get our attention. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. What on earth is Paul talking about here? These are descriptions that Paul is giving of false teachers. Dogs, because they bite and devour. Evil workers, because they undermine the work of Christ. And when he uses this phrase, the mutilation, Paul is painting a picture here of what legalism does to true faith. It mutilates it. It destroys it. It leaves you spiritually deformed and marred. These legalistic leaders were coming into the church saying that to believe in Jesus really wasn't enough. That if you really wanted to be saved, you had to do X, Y, and Z. But anything that we put our confidence in that is in outward actions mutilates or destroys genuine faith. It robs you of your joy. It it puts you on the performance treadmill spiritually. And one of the big ideas that the legalists or the Judaizers in those days were spreading through the Gentile churches was the idea of circumcision. Basically, they were saying this, that if you really wanted to be a Christ follower, you didn't, it wasn't just enough to believe in Christ, but you also had to embrace Judaism and be circumcised. Remember when we, last summer, we were talking or teaching through Galatians. And remember we got to that point where Paul was talking about those who were coming into the church of Galatia saying, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Remember what Paul said about them? He says, I wish those who tell you that would just cut themselves off. And what he was talking about there is that they would castrate themselves. I mean, he was being very, very, you know, just blunt in what he was saying. Paul's saying here, these guys are trying to mutilate your faith. So he gives this warning. Beware of legalism. It's a joy stealer. And then he says this. 
For we are the circumcision, and it's really implied here, the idea is the true circumcision, who worship God in spirit, in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Here's what Paul is saying. Followers of Jesus, we spiritually are the true circumcision. You see, it's not about meaningless outward marks. It's about the inward mark that counts. It's the Holy Spirit in your hearts. True worship is not outward actions of rituals and markings, but it's the inward attitude of the heart. When Paul says, in the Spirit, he's speaking of that which is real and authentic. We are rejoicing in Christ, he says. The idea there is we're celebrating the finished work of Jesus and the victory of Jesus. And then he says, and we put no confidence in our flesh. We're not putting confidence in our outward actions. And Paul's going to use himself as an example of what the legalists and the Judaizers would really deem as a person who could have confidence in his flesh. Look at verse 4. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I the more so. I was circumcised the eighth day. Now, that was what was written in the uh, Law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 12, that they would circumcise their male children on the eighth day. So Paul said, I, I got that one covered. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, that was a prominent tribe. That was the tribe that King Saul came out of. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, both of my parents were 100%. So I am a 100% Hebrew. And concerning the law, he says, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the conservative religious group. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservative group. The Sadducees were the liberal group. So Paul says, I'm in the conservative camp. I'm not one of those liberals. And concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Before Paul became a Christian, he sought to single-handedly put an end to the followers of Jesus. That's how zealous he was for Judaism. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. In other words, nobody could accuse me of anything. Now that is quite a resume for the flesh. But the problem is, none of that brought an assurance in Paul's heart that he was right with God. None of that filled his heart with joy. So Paul wants us to understand that it's not who we are in our flesh that matters, but it's who we are in Christ. That's what matters to God. Who we used to be is not what matters, but what matters is who we are now and where we are now. And what matters is, are we moving forward in our faith? You see, your standing with God is solely based on who you are in Jesus. And this is what Paul discovered at his conversion on the road to Damascus. He's going to put uh, Christians in prison. He's going to uh, separate families. He's on a tirade to just put an end to these followers of Christ. And he has an encounter with the risen Jesus there on the road. And his eyes are open that everything that he thought about Jesus was wrong and that Jesus truly was the Messiah and the Son of God. His eyes were open. 
So he makes this declaration here in verse 7. He says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here's what Paul's saying. Because his confidence was no longer in his flesh, it was no longer in his pedigree, Paul, this is what Paul did. He said, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. What Paul is telling us here, he's laying out before us what we might call a profit and loss statement. That things I used to view as assets, as gains, they're all going in the loss column now. What were those things? His pedigree, his religious training, his Jewish heritage, his religious zeal, and his religious works. His confidence for right standing with God was no longer going to be placed in those things. He says, I've counted them as lost. Now, I want you to note something. He says, I counted them. That's past tense. 30 years before, 30 years prior to this, Paul gave his life to Jesus on the road to Damascus. And at that moment, as Paul was understanding what Jesus has done, he counted everything that, re, that was about who he was and his confidence in his flesh, he counted that as loss. 30 years ago, I counted it as loss, yet notice in verse 8 he says, yet I also count, that's present tense, all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I counted it as lost, and I still count it as lost. Why do you think he says that? I think the answer is, is because our flesh has a tendency to always want to rear its ugly head. And his flesh, I think, continued to try to get him to place his confidence in those old things. And so Paul said, I counted his loss back then, but I continue to count it as loss right now. Because the flesh is always wanting to rear its ugly head. And, then, and, just, so we, and just so we don't miss the point here, notice Paul, he says, I don't just count them as loss, I count them as rubbish. I count them as garbage, it's actually strong, really strong in the King James, which is, is closer here to the original Greek as far as in this word. I count them as dung. The idea is animal excrements. I know. Paul was kind of bold, wasn't he? <laughs> he said, I count it just as doo-doo, you know? I just count it as, 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 as dung, excrement. It's just, that's, that's what I think of, of, of my 
pedigree and all that that I used to put my confidence in. That's what it is. So all of that goes in the lost column. His pedigree, his religious training, his Jewish heritage, his religious seal, his religious works. Now what goes in the gain column is all about who Paul is in Jesus. Here's the gain column. The righteousness of Jesus, he says, and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So that's first of all. The righteousness of Christ. Paul would write in Romans chapter 5 that we are justified by faith. The word justified means that we are declared righteous, that that's how God sees us in Jesus. When we give our life to Christ, that God looks at you and he declares you now are righteous, your sins are forgiven, they're forgotten, you have been cleansed, you're made a new creation, we're justified. And so that's what Paul said. First of all, I gained the righteousness of Jesus. I was trying to earn my righteousness before and I couldn't do it, but now I gained the righteousness of Jesus He also gained intimacy with Jesus. He says that I may know him. And the word know there is the idea of to know him intimately. To know him in a close relationship and to know him by experience. That was not even possible in Judaism. They had no sense that they could really, really know God and have an intimate relationship with God. Paul says, I get to know him. And what's interesting to me, when Paul writes this, again, he's been a Christian now for 30 years. He's planted most of his churches. This is close to the end of his life. And he's still focusing on getting to know Jesus. And I think if we could ask Paul and say, Paul, you know, after 30 years, don't you know him by now? That he would respond to us, yes, but there's so much more of him to know. There's so much more of him to know that Paul viewed the intimacy and getting to know Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus, like a treasure chest in which he was just continually bringing forth one jewel, one insight after another. His passion after 30 years was the same as it was as the day that he got saved on the road to Damascus when he cried When Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember what he said? Who are you, Lord? And that became his passion for the next 30 years, to know him, to know who he is. And I hope that is inspiring to you. As you study the Bible, that the goal of Bible study is to know Jesus. It's to see him. It's to grow in your relationship with him and not just gain information. So in the gain column, the righteousness of Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, and resurrection power. He says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The redeemed life is a life of power. The power that brought forth Jesus Christ from the grave is made available to us. Paul would pray for the church in Ephesus. I pray that you might know the power that is available to you. It's the very same power that brought Jesus out of the grave. It's why we like to say that in this Christian battle that we are in, that we're not fighting for victory, but we fight from a place of victory because Jesus has already won the war. And our risen Lord has his power available to us now in legalism it's the opposite of that there's no power there's no confidence the treadmill of religious performance always leaves you feeling like you haven't done enough 
So Paul's gain column, the righteousness of Jesus, the intimacy with Jesus, resurrection power, and life transformation. Again, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. When Paul says that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, I think he's referring to here primarily what he has discovered about the crucified life. You see, the more that Paul died to himself and placed his confidence in Christ, the more he discovered that resurrection power of Jesus working through his life. The more that he discovered that he was weak, he discovered what he would write in 2 Corinthians 12, that God's grace is sufficient and his power would be made perfect in his weakness. That's why Paul would write this in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. So Paul is making a strong case here for making sure that our confidence is in Jesus and not in ourselves. But then Paul reveals that the Christian life is to be is meant to be a life where we are always pursuing growth. That we're always seeking to be moving forward. That we're never content with the status quo. Or never content or never ever getting to that place where we feel like we've arrived. But always wanting more. More of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus has also laid hold of me. I like the way the King James Version puts this. It says, I press on that I may apprehend the reason that I have been apprehended by Christ. When you hear that word apprehended, what do you think of? Thinking of cops, some of you are, right? Because that's, you're felons, that's your background, you know, and you can... (laughs) You know what that was like. But, but really, it's, it's kind of the idea. That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He was apprehended by Christ. Jesus chased him down. Jesus cut him off at the pass. And some of you can relate to that because you were running as fast and far away from God as you possibly could. And Jesus ran after you. And he apprehended you. And he laid hold of you. Now, some of you here, you, you might not be able to relate to that. Because maybe, you know, you grew up in a Christian home. And sometimes I, I hear people that grew up in a Christian home, and they think, yeah, I really don't have a testimony. But that's not true. We all have a testimony. And this is it. Some of you, your testimony is this, that you were in the pit, and Jesus came and rescued you out of the pit. He came and ran you down, saw you wiped out, rescued you out of the pit. But others of you, he saved you from the pit. Not out of the pit, but for, he got a hold of you before you got into the pit. But all of us have a testimony, and this is Paul's point. This is what I want you to understand and really catch from what Paul is saying, is whether you were saved out of the pit or from the pit, Jesus has laid hold of you. He's apprehended you for a reason and a purpose. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm wanting to come to that place of understanding the reason why Jesus has apprehended me. And for Paul, there was great joy in that discovery. 
And what he discovered is that this was an ongoing revelation. That when Paul would go into one city, and God would begin to work, he'd go, oh, here's the reason why God apprehended me. Oh, I'm in this prison cell in Philippi, and now this jailer ends up getting saved. Oh, here's another reason why he apprehended me. And the same thing can be true of our lives if we look at it from that perspective that God has apprehended you for a purpose. And every single day, our lives can be the revelation of why we have been apprehended when we allow Him to use our lives in the lives of others. Every helping hand that we give, every show of love and grace, every time we get a chance to share the gospel, every time we get a chance to lead somebody to the Lord, or when you are teaching your kids what it looks like to love Jesus and walk with Jesus, all of that falls under that category of the reason why he has apprehended you. And life can take on a whole new meaning if we would simply say each day, Lord, show me today why you've apprehended me. What's your purpose for my life today? So Paul says, again, verse 12, not that I've already obtained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love this. Paul's been walking with Jesus for 30 years, but he still hasn't arrived yet. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that encouraging? We never arrive. We're all still in process, folks. And there's joy in knowing that we are in process. And there's a purpose to the process. And the purpose is that God is seeking to make us more like Jesus. That's the purpose of the process. But I want you to notice what Paul says here. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Paul is telling us that forgetting is essential to moving forward. Forgetting is essential for having joy in the race. Forgetting what lies behind. But our problem is, it's sometimes hard to forget, isn't it? It's hard to forget our past. We've all done things that we're ashamed of. We're all, we all have our failures. We all have those things in our BC days that we don't want to talk about. Memories that we'd like to forget that have a way of resurfacing in the memory banks of our minds and our hearts and our souls. So it's important to understand what Paul is really saying in this statement. Forgetting those things which are behind. He's admonishing us not to dwell on the past. That's the focus. Not to dwell on the past. To not let your past influence your presence. And, and when he says to not dwell on the past, that's the idea. I, I think we could relate this in two ways. One is not dwelling on our past failures because that's what the enemy likes to do. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he loves to come and get us to, you know, he wants to condemn us. And he wants to bring up our past to say, remember when you did this. And we have to remind ourselves and stand on the truth that Jesus paid the price for that and he's forgiven us of that and that those things... Yes, they might be true, and we did those things, but he has forgiven us of those, and he's forgotten those things. 
So for, for, forgetting, not dwelling on our past failures, but I think also not dwelling on our past victories. And here's why I say this. It really doesn't matter what you did with Jesus or for Jesus 20 years ago or two years ago or two weeks ago. What matters is what are you doing now? What are you doing now? And the idea is that God wants us to finish strong. So Paul says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Adam Clark, in his commentary, has a good insight on this. He said, the Greek word for the the phrase press forward carries the idea of strong exertions made in a race where every muscle and nerve is exerted and he puts forth every participle of his strength in running. He's running for his life or for life, and he's running for his life. It's that picture of the Olympic runner, just running, pressing on with every ounce of his being. He's pressing toward the goal, the prize, the prize of the call of God. What is that? Again, I love what David Gusick says about this. The prize is the call itself. Not the benefits that come from the call or any other thing. The prize is being able to run the race at all, working with God as a partner to do the work of his kingdom. So he wants us to press on, to press forward. In the days when Spain led the world in exploration, their coins reflected their national arrogance and were inscribed with this phrase, ne plus ultra, which meant nothing further. Meaning that Spain was the ultimate in all of the world. But then when the new world was discovered, they realized that they weren't the end of the world, and so they changed their inscription on their coinage to read plus ultra, which means more beyond. And I ask you this question. Which motto better expresses your Christian life? Nothing further? I've arrived. I've made it. I'm doing great. You know, Or more beyond? I hope that it's more beyond. I hope it's a sense of just saying, Jesus, I want more of you. Let's wrap this up as we come to verse 15 and 16. He says, Therefore, let as many as mature have this mind, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Here's what Paul's basically saying as he wraps this up. Let's not be satisfied with the status quo, but let's all be pressing forward and pressing on and making it our goal to know Jesus more to know him more, to experience him more, to serve him more. Because there's so much of him to know. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's exhortation to us tonight. That we wouldn't be and we wouldn't have confidence in our flesh. But our confidence would be in the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, we know that the more that we are confident in what you have done and the more we learn and and come to understand what you have done for us and who we are in you, the more confident that we can be to walk in this life in the power and the victory 
that you've laid out for us. Lord, I pray that none of us would find ourselves on that place, falling back into that that performance-based acceptance treadmill where we're still trying to earn your favor through things that we, religious rituals that we are doing, but that our confidence would solely be in the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, as we spend the rest of this night in our discussion groups and, and discussing these things, I pray that you would just guide and, and be a part of these conversations. In Jesus' name, amen.